One last quick announcement and bookkeeping matter. We are soon entering into our Easter season or the Lenten season. We're going to be kicking that off on March 3rd, which is only two weeks away. And we had a lot of success when we launched Connections back in September uh, with a journey of prayer through the scriptures to cover our launch and to initiate and you know go into public ministry um, just covered in the Word of God and covered in prayer. And so I think this is going to become a rhythm and routine for us to have special seasons of celebration and prayer and focus on the scriptures. And we're going to do that this Easter season through Journey to the Cross. And so you can get one of these books, and the way you can be assured of getting one of these is to grab that Connect card that's in front of you, write down your name, and write down how many copies you want. And we are asking for a suggested gift of $10 to help us cover the cost. If that's a problem, don't worry. We want to get these into everybody's hands because we know we get incredible benefit and blessing by you praying personally for yourself, for your family, for your own mission and service, but also for our church and our mission to the community. So again, grab that card, let us know, yes, I want to go on the journey to the cross with connections this Easter season. Make sense? And 10 of God's people said yes. All right. Hey, happy Valentine's Day slash President's Day weekend. I'm always conflicted on this weekend. Do I get romantic or do I read the latest biography of Grant? I'm never quite sure. The two don't really seem to mesh very well, romance and presidential history. So I don't know where you are at in it, but I wanted to raise up a thing that comes up very often during the Valentine's Day weekend, and that is the DTR. Does anybody know what I'm mean when I say the DTR, what that stands for? Define the relationship. Anybody remember that? I don't know if it's kind of a big thing with kids, but a couple years ago, everybody was talking about, oh, we need to have the DTR. I had my big DTR on May 17th, 1997, whenever my about-to-be father-in-law stood in front of me and Robin and said, do you? And I said, I do. That is a very brief but very definitive defining of the relationship. Amen? Well, Defining the relationship strikes fear into the hearts of men and women throughout the ages. Um, sometimes it's very exciting, sometimes it's very nerve-wracking, but whenever you have it, you know, the point is to know where you're at and where you're going. You know, kind of, kind of like, are we just having fun? Uh, are we just in this for a good time? Or is there a future here? Is there a together here? So a lot of people, you know, they have during this Valentine season the define the relationship talk. I was actually with a friend of mine. We were skiing three weeks ago. And since before I moved here for more than four years, uh, he was in this relationship with this woman. And, and somehow she was the one who, who kept being able to kind of avoid or put off the DTR, the define the relationship talk. Uh, he would want to bring it up, and she would always seem to evade it. And then he was telling me, so we got on the lift, and we're skiing, and, and he tells me, it's, it's over, George. And in my most pastoral, loving tone, I said, yeah, right, I'm sure we've had this conversation. I mean, honestly, it was deja vu. We've had this conversation how many times? And he's like, no, really, no, really. Like, I lay down the line, like we are on or we are off, and I'm just getting even, you know, more, you know, yeah, right, I'm sure. And then he did it. He actually said, I'm going to prove it, George. And he pulled out his phone and he deleted the contact right there on the ski lift in front of me and said, 
you know, I will never talk to her again unless she reaches out to me. And I was like, and it sounds weird, but I was like, congratulations. Like, like you, like, like you can kind of get on with your life if this isn't where, you know, it, it, it's meant to be. Well, We've been having a kind of define the relationship series of talks in our With Us series. Um, I bet, actually, I'm going I'm to put it this way. I bet you could guess, by context, I bet you could guess what is the most often repeated promise or assurance that God gives us in the Word. Anybody want to take a guess? The most often repeated assurance is that He will be with us. More than any other promise, God tells us he'll be with us. He told Adam, he who told Eve, I will be with you. He, he told Noah during the, the, during the flood, I will be with you and your family. Uh, he, he reached out and he spoke to Abram and to Sarah and said, I will be with you and through you we are going to bring this blessing to this world. He said, I will be with uh, Isaac. I will be with Jacob. He said, I will be with you, Joseph, as you go off to this land of Egypt. I will be with you, Moses, as you become Israel's deliverer. He promised to be with the kings. He promised to be with the judges. He promised to be with the priests and the prophets. He was with his people. You're getting the idea. So often the promise was that God will be with us. And that leads right into the ministry of Jesus, the ultimate way that God was coming to be with his people, the fulfillment of the promise that I will be with you always in the birth of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. And then last week we talked about the ways that Jesus continues to be with us and with his people. He's with us by the power of his Holy Spirit. And I pray that we are getting into the rhythm and the routine, at least in this season, to invite more of the Holy Spirit to be with us, to fill us, to move us. We have this promise of the Word of God is how God is with us and speaks to us and to guides us. And then we have the promise of the body of Christ as we gather together. God shows up. He is here in a special way. He lives and works and moves through His people in the body. And so we've been living into all of this with us stuff. And in the ministry of Jesus, well, we'll highlight one point in particular. There's this moment where he's walking uh, with his disciples, and he raises the question. He says, who do people say I am? And they said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist back from the dead. Others said, you're Elijah back from the dead. Others say, you're a prophet, uh, you're a teacher, you're a wonderful man. And then he kind of zeroes in on it to define the relationship. Who do you say I am? And that's when a man named Peter kind of raised his hand and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The thing that we see about Jesus throughout his ministry is, is, is there was, or at least there is reported for us, no ambivalence. People walk away from interactions with Jesus having defined the relationship. And let's be honest about it. Some define the relationship this way. I hate you, Jesus, <laughs> and I will set out to destroy you. There were people that walked away from inter- interactions with Jesus, rejecting him and vowing to set themselves against him. And in the end, we know that they brought about his crucifixion, which only served to fulfill the plans and the promises of God through his atoning sacrifice and the forgiveness of our sins, and the gift of our salvation. But others, of course, define the relationship by calling him Savior, calling him Lord, and vowing to give their lives to him. 
And so we see that there's no ambivalence. We always come away from Jesus having defined the relationship. I would also propose to you that during the course of this morning or this series, or I would certainly encourage you in this season of life, perhaps leading up to Easter, I would give you this encouragement, which you can probably guess the encouragement I'm going to give you right now. I would love for each and every one of us to define the relationship with Jesus as Peter did, as 11 of the disciples did. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. We believe that God raised you from the dead and believe that through you we have life. I would love for you to define your relationship with Jesus in that way, to lay your life before him, to sit at his feet as we are going to get into. And we're going to get into now a story that will highlight for us how some people defined their relationship with Jesus. It's, it's actually a story that I think many of us are, are familiar with. <clears throat> For some reason, it seems to often be quoted or repeated. It often seems to be used and imposed uh, upon people to classify. Uh, and, and it's actually classified in a way that I think is a bit erroneous because the classic classification becomes, are you a Martha or are you a Mary? But I think this is um, shortchanging the, the story in a little bit. So, Without any further ado, then, let's read the story. Let's let the story speak for itself. Then let's begin to pull it apart and see what really is here for us. So we're going to turn to Luke chapter 10. And it's actually, it's actually a short story. It's only five verses. So pay attention to how quick this is and all that unfolds. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So a couple observations about the text. Martha and Mary have become ubiquitous with faith and classifying people as Martha's or Mary's, but... This is our first encounter. We, we should enter into this with no preconceived ideas or notions about who these women are or what their ministry is, is like. This is our first encounter. Jesus has been in ministry, and he's on the way. Uh, we talked about that the other week, the amazing things that can happen on the way. Have eyes to see, have ears to hear, have an availability in the moment with God for what can happen on the way. Certainly have your direction, have your focus, have your mission, but be open to the amazing things that can happen on the way. It was on the way that he comes into, and we can surmise then, this is perhaps his first now real encounter with Martha and Mary. We don't know what unfolded to bring him to the place, but Martha opens up her home, which is our first interesting or next interesting observation, um, that it's Martha's home. The parents seem to be out of the picture. None of them seem to be married, Martha or Mary, and we're going to be introduced later to her brother. So perhaps they're all young. We, we, we don't know, but what an interesting 
situation that we have this family of siblings. Martha seems to be the one who has the ability, the gifting, the knack for running the household. It's called her home. We can also assume there's some wealth, there's some, some, some security in this family, despite the parents being out of the picture. Uh, we're going to uh, read that Lazarus, who's going to die, is going to be buried on the grounds of the home. So they have enough land that they actually have a cave, and they have a stone that they can roll in front of it. So they're, so they're not, you know, kind of uh, stuck in the, in the inner city and, and cloistered now with all these people, but they're kind of maybe out on the outskirts, and they have a bit of an estate, we, we might say. And, of course, we're going to see later then in the ministry of of Mary that she's going to prepare Jesus for his burial by giving this sacrifice of worship through this anointing with this expensive perfume worth a year's wages. So there's some resources here. And then we impose, of course, this problem on this text. And, and, and here seems to be the problem, the, the simplification that plagues this passage. We think Mary has it all figured out. We think Mary is the model. Mary is the one who is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And yes, that is going to be an example for us. So that's how we relate to Jesus. We sit quietly at his feet. We go in this sort of monastic mode of solitude with Jesus, and that is how we love him. That is how we grow close to him. That is how faith is lived out. And then Martha gets this criticism. She's the busy one, the frantic one, the always going, 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 doing, doing, doing. And then we seem to say, you know, we need to be more like Martha, uh, Mary rather than Martha, except, except for the problem, of course, that you know, just before this, Jesus sends out 72 disciples to go and do his work. And in fact, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So get more workers to do the job that my father is calling you to do. And Jesus tells a number of parables where the lazy servants, well, it doesn't seem to work out so well for the lazy servants. And of course, Jesus' final commission to his followers is going to be to go, to do something, to baptize, to teach, to make more disciples. This is how I'll be with you in the work that you continue in the mission that you do in my name. So there must be something more that's happening that we can't just classify Martha, bad, Mary, good, because Jesus is always affirming his work being continued and carried on in his name. So we read in this text then that Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, while Martha was distracted with the work to be done. Now, many uh, preachers have said this, and it's been talked about by a number of sources, but I first learned about it by going through a video series by a guy named Ray Vanderlaan, who talked about the rabbinic tradition that Jesus stepped into. And he said that this term, sitting at the feet of the rabbi, was a very loaded term. To sit at the feet of the rabbi was an offering of yourself, an offering of submission, a saying, I am going to be your disciple. And the goal of discipleship wasn't just to sit and at the feet and then do nothing with it, but was to sit at the feet of the rabbi and then get up and go with the rabbi and to work with the rabbi and to do what the rabbi did. If the rabbi was going to answer some questions and some conversations, you wanted to be there to hear how it was going to go down. If the rabbi was interacting with different groups of people, you wanted to be there and to be a part of seeing how the rabbi was going to interact with others. If the rabbi went to, you know, have dinner with his family, you wanted to be there. You always wanted to be with your rabbi because the goal 
wasn't just to know what the rabbi knew, but to do what the rabbi did. I, I use that illustration. You can't say, uh, the, the other week, you can't say, I want to learn martial arts by going and watching somebody perform martial arts for an hour and then walking away and doing nothing until the next week when you show up and watch the sensei do martial arts. No, no, you'd just be observing martial arts. You'd be entertained by martial arts. You'd be amused by it, but you wouldn't be doing the martial arts until you actually got up and threw some punches and some kicks and sparred a bit and maybe got yourself a bloody nose or whatever it's going to take to become a martial artist. The same as the rabbinic tradition. You don't just listen and learn from the rabbi. You start to then do what the rabbi did. That is always the goal of discipleship. And so an expression came about that the hope of the disciples was that they would always be covered in the dust of the rabbi. You see, that's how they defined the relationship, through the dust of the rabbi. Are you starting? Is anybody getting where I'm going with here? I think this is a pretty good one. I was pretty happy with this connection. They defined the relationship. The DTR was to be covered in the dust of the rabbi. The D- Come on, people. Are you getting what I'm saying? I need some head nodding to say you're making the connections. All right. All right. Thank you. Again, 10 people here are fully engaged. The, de- the definition of the relationship is that you are being covered in the dust of the rabbi because you are following him that closely. Mary is saying to Jesus, I want to define my relationship with you this way. I will be covered in your dust. I will sit at your feet. I am going to do what you do, Jesus. I want to do what you're doing. But Martha was distracted. Can anybody relate? (laughs) But Martha was distracted by all the work, and let's be honest about what it says, all the work that had to be done. The nature of distraction, of course, is this. In order to be distracted, it is inferred that you would like to have your focus on something else, right? I mean, I mean that, that, that's part of the definition. If she was just, if she didn't care, it would, it would say she didn't care, but it says she was distracted. She obviously has this pull towards Jesus, this desire to learn from him. She's opened up her home to him, and yet that focus, that attentiveness to Jesus is being distracted. It's being pulled away from. She's distracted by all this. And, and to be honest, hospitality is a big deal. I mean, hospitality is a big deal to us. Hospitality was all the more a big deal in ancient cultures. The opening up of homes was necessary. It was essential. It was a requirement. And she has opened up her home. The obligations now are are paramount. And yet she is distracted by all this work that needs to be done, even though she wants to be at the feet of of Jesus, it would seem, and it is like she can't take it any longer, and she's going to have to insert herself into this situation. She is very, very distracted. John Ortberg talks about it this way. He talks about frustration amplification. Anybody here ever experience frustration amplification in situations like this? All right, all right. We're getting, you know, it's, it's like this. You know, you, you have dinner. You're, you're entertaining some people. And, and, then, and then your spouse goes, 
And they sit at the couch and they turn on the TV. And meanwhile, you're like, how, how can you leave the kitchen a mess? Like who, like, who can even do that? Who can even walk out and not be obsessed about this? And so you decide, well, I'll clean up. But your cleaning up starts to go like this. Like, the, I'll just move these uh, ch- chairs over here. And, uh, you know, oh, let's get to, oh, you know, we got to move that. You know, and, and you, it starts getting amplified. But with everything that you do to kind of raise their attention, they just seem to turn up the volume a little bit more, you know. I mean, and, and, and then finally, I mean, you're just like, how can somebody live like this? I mean, don't they know if we don't clean up the kitchen, there's going to get, you know, you know, insects. And if there's insects, there's going to be rodents. And if there's rodents, it's, they're going to carry the bubonic plague and then the kids are going to get bit and then they're going to tell their teachers and they're going to come and they're going to wrap the house in yellow tape and the house is going to get going to get condemned and it's all going to say all because my stupid spouse wouldn't clean up the frustration amplification thank you yes some people are experienced you have experienced incidentally my wife is away for the weekend, and I'm starting to see rodents in my house. So pray that she gets home quickly, because I clear... No, 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 no. See, we have this incredible ability to amplify the situation. And that is what Martha finally does. She can't take it anymore. Which doesn't mean she just pushes everything else aside to go and be with Jesus. She pulls Jesus away. Jesus, don't you care? Jesus, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all of the work? Tell her. You got got to love that. Tell her to help me. And then Jesus says, Martha, Martha. Whenever, Whenever there's repetition in the Bible, just as a general principle, I'll always pay, pay attention. You know, truly, truly, I'm going to tell you something. Simon, Simon, Satan has sifted you out, but I'm praying for you. Saul, Saul, why, why, do, why are you persecuting me? And, and if, you, if you grew up in my, I'm sorry, I just have to insert this. If you grew up in my generation watching the Brady Bunch, what was Jan, Jan said it, I, I'm guessing, every episode. It seemed like she said it every episode. What did she say? Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. But here is, I gotta love that, but, but Jesus is not condescending at all here. It's not Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. It's Martha, Martha. You are worried and upset by many things. But few things are necessary. I love how Jesus said, but few things are necessary. But then he's like, mm, wait, no. I'm actually going to, you know, back up on that. Actually, only one thing. <laughs> only one thing. And he doesn't say what it is. But he says to her, Mary has chosen what is better. And it won't be taken from her. Martha is distracted, she is worried, and she is upset. And I think that's a pretty good description of a lot of our waking moments in life. That despite our best intentions, we end up going through so much of life distracted, worried, and upset. 
But if we could have the clarity of mind and the focus of attention to look to what really matters that won't be taken away from us, I think we could go a long way in our faith. The one thing that is most important is to define the relationship by being the ones who come to the feet of Jesus to be covered in the dust of the rabbi. By no intention or planning or preparation, these stories that I wanted to get into to show us how God is with us and we can be invited into a with Jesus relationship, an abiding, living relationship with him, it just strikes me now how almost every story we've looked at has had the phrase, they came to the feet of Jesus. Over and over and over again, we see people bowing themselves down, laying down, crying out for help or calling out for mercy or looking for resurrection. But over and over, they're coming to the feet of Jesus. Whether they know it or not, whether they've thought through it or not, they are enacting physically this proximity, uh, this desperation, this cry for help of being at the feet of Jesus. And now, though, for the first time, I'm sorry, again, we have a woman coming to the feet of Jesus, but now not for healing, uh, not for hope for resurrection, not for anything else, but to submit herself, to define the relationship, to be covered in the dust of the rabbi. And maybe, maybe this is the distraction of Martha. This is the distraction of Martha. It's not that hospitality didn't matter. It mattered immensely. It is who does Mary think she is to sit at the feet of the rabbi? This is countercultural. This is not just countercultural. This is culturally offensive. You see, the rabbi and disciple gang is a boys' club. The rabbi and disciple gig is always about the boys. It is about the young men who go through their educational system who qualify themselves, who rise to become the cream of the crop, who get the invitation from one of the rabbis to sit at his feet and to walk and to be covered in his dust. And there is no indication that ever in the history of the rabbinic tradition that I was able to uncover and that others were able to uncover that women ever came to the feet of the rabbi and said, I want to do what you do. And it would appear from this text that Jesus has no problem with it. In fact, it would appear that he is delighted by it. Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things, but there are few things are necessarily, indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better. And I will not take this away from her. This will not be taken away from her. She will be one of my disciples. She will sit at my feet. She will be covered in my dust. She will do the ministry that I do. This is our invitation to be covered in the dust of the rabbi as we sit at his feet. I invite the band to come up, and they're going to provide us with some worship time that we may examine our relationship with the rabbi. And as you can imagine, as I've already indicated, I would love for you to make this commitment. I would love for you to follow this same example. I would love for each and every one of us 
to set our lives at the feet of Jesus, to define our relationship with him as Savior and as Lord, and to say that we want to be covered in your dust as we want to do what you do. And so we would take this opportunity now in worship to examine our hearts and to examine our lives and where we want to be and what we want to do. I love how the text says, well, I love how the text says, I'm saddened by the text, but I think the text is pretty accurate in saying that Martha was distracted and worried and upset. And I believe the invitation now of this text is to take each and every one of those as an opportunity to make a turn. That we would take every distraction and see that as an opportunity to redirect our lives towards Jesus. To take every possible distraction when we seem like we want to get the work in the kitchen done and yet one of our kids is calling to us. Maybe that distraction is actually the invitation to say what really matters here and to give my attention to this child, to this friend, to this person, to this individual. Maybe each and every time we get a distraction by somebody bugging us at work, it's actually an invitation for us to become the hands and the feet of Jesus to help and serve them. Maybe every time the phone rings right when we don't want it to ring, that's actually an invitation for us to become the voice of Jesus, speaking peace, speaking love, speaking encouragement, speaking hope into somebody's lives. Maybe each and every one of these distractions in our lives, these distractions that Martha was so plagued by could actually be turned to become an invitation to say, Jesus, where are you meeting me in this moment? And how can I turn this to you so that I might do as you would do, Jesus? Maybe every worry is an invitation. Maybe every worry that is stirring around in our heart and in our soul and maybe right in our gut right now Maybe every worry is an invitation to turn that to trust in Jesus. This worry that I have over my child's education, I'm going to turn that to trust and faith in you. This worry that I have over this, uh, this, this word that I got from the doctor and the diagnosis is actually an invitation to turn this to trust and to faith in you. This worry that, that I have about work in the future uh, is actually an invitation to put my faith and my trust in you, Jesus. Every distraction becomes an invitation. Every worry becomes this opportunity to turn our faith and trust. Every upset is this opportunity to say, how could I display the fruits of the Spirit? How could I turn this thing that is so deeply upsetting to me as an invitation to sit at the feet of the rabbi, to do as he does, to live as he would call me to live? The thing about it is this. Once we define the relationship that we have with Jesus as Savior and Lord, that is the thing that can never be taken away from us. That is the assurance, that is the promise, that is the peace that we have, that when we define our relationship with Jesus to say, you are the Son of God whom he raised from the dead on the third day, and by my mouth I confess with my heart I believe that you are Savior, that you are Lord, that relationship will never be taken away. And so I want to give us the opportunity to pray and to define our relationship with Jesus Christ. You may have defined your relationship with him this way years and years ago. Maybe you never have. 
But each and every day, each and every distraction, each and every worry, each and every upset, each and every moment of every day, we have the opportunity to allow our lives to be defined by our relationship with Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And so I'm going to say a prayer, and this is a prayer that you would desire to recommit yourself to, wonderful, or if this is a desire that you've never felt before, but now you're feeling it in a new and a fresh and exciting way, I believe that a relationship with God, we believe that a relationship with God can be established in a moment. In a moment, your life can turn. In a moment, the thing that can never be taken away can be secured in your heart and in your soul and for all eternity to know Him as Savior and Lord. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, I give you thanks for this opportunity that we've had to come and to worship you, to see one another, to fellowship together, to sing songs of praise and to lift up prayers. But now the most important thing, the thing that will never be taken away, the thing that we want to put front and center, all of our focus, removing all distractions, removing all worries, removing all upset, is to say, Jesus, we come before you to sit at your feet. We come to be covered in the dust of you, the rabbi. We come to surrender our lives to you and to call you Savior and to call you Lord. Lord Jesus, we repent of our sin and we ask in you to save us. We declare that you are Lord and we will live our lives now and forever for you. We receive this as a gift and a promise, and we stand in the full assurance, the full assurance that we have life in you now and forever. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I invite our team to come forward, and they're going to get ready to receive our gifts and offerings as an act of worship unto God. If you want that Lenten Easter devotional, please indicate that on the card and let us know. We want to make sure that we have enough. Let's stand now and let's continue to worship our God.